True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The hostel is quiet as the young girl pads into the bathroom. She listens out for her friend's voice, but the conversation she'd been having with the young man is quietened down for a moment. She wonders if everything is okay. Should she go and check on her? As the thought enters her mind, she feels a sharp blow to the back of her head. Her legs collapse beneath her, and she senses his presence. She's always felt uneasy around him, and she doesn't even need to see his face to know it's him. He's come for retribution. She knows this, and her final thoughts are of her friend. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 110, The Murders of Charnel Ho and Mana Engelbrecht. This episode is sponsored by Just Wellness. My voice has become pretty important to me, and as we head into the flu season, I'm taking every precaution to ensure I don't get sick and experience any nose, throat, or lung ailments that might put a spoke in the podcast production. So I've been practicing what I preach, and I've been taking Just Wellness's Pelagonium and Olive Leaf Tincture to ensure that I'm ready for the flu bug when it inevitably flies past my nose at some or other in-person event. I just pop the required number of drops into a small amount of water in the morning, swig it down, and it's done for the day. Pelagonium is highly valued as a remedy for several respiratory tract ailments, including acute bronchitis. Several studies have examined the efficacy of the root extracts of pelagonium cydoids in the treatment of various respiratory conditions, many of which have shown promising results. So if you, like me, would far rather avoid and have the tools to fight upper respiratory infections, head over to Just Wellness's website to take advantage of their buy two tinctures and get free delivery offer. Their products are also available in-store at Discam if you aren't a fan of online shopping. A huge thank you to Just Wellness for sponsoring this episode of True Crime South Africa. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank those listeners who've supported the show through Patreon or PayPal recently. A huge thank you goes out to Sonica Fox, Tony Magada, Ellen Stewart, Elisa Boyette, Megan, Andrea Loxley, Toby DC, Jean-Marie Cocaine, and Selena Jordan for your support on Patreon, as well as Camilla Clark for your support on PayPal. Thank you so much for your support, everyone. It really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to get an exclusive episode every month, as well as ad-free versions of every week's episode, check out the link to Patreon in the show notes and sign up for a minimum of $1, which is about the same price as a loaf of bread right now. You can also support the show by supporting our sponsors, including King Online and Wallpaper Online, by using the discount code TCSA10 or True Crime respectively when purchasing on their websites, and you'll get a 10% discount too. 
or you can support me as an individual creator by purchasing my book, Samurai Sword Murder, in hard copy, ebook, or audiobook formats, as well as the audiobook I narrated for Yana Marks of the Krugersdorp Cult Murders. Non-financial support is just as valuable, so please share and invite your friends to listen. The case I'm covering this week is on everyone's tongues at the moment, and if you're wondering if it's a coincidence that I'm covering it, no, no it's not. The murders of Chanel Ho and Mana Engelbrecht were recently the topic of the latest Showmax original documentary, Stella Murders. I don't know whether the news is going to have been made public by the time I release this episode or not, but it won't be long until it is, so I will share with you that I've had the privilege of creating another official companion podcast with Showmax, this time for Stella Murders. If you've been following True Crime South Africa for a while, you'll know that in 2021, when Showmax released their award-winning original documentary Devil's Dorp about the Krugersdorp cult murders, they also decided to level up with their innovation and release a first of its kind in South Africa, an official companion podcast with the documentary. And I had the distinct privilege of creating and producing that podcast, which would go on along with the documentary to win two awards. The documentary and the companion podcast delve deeply into some of the major issues around this case but I still wanted to cover the case from beginning to end, because I think that in conjunction with the docky and the companion pod, it will be a valuable tool in truly understanding this case. In researching this case, I used many different resources, including my interviews with people related to the investigation, the documentary Stella Murders, a book about the case written by Susan Saliers, and the judgment in the final appeal made by the perpetrator. So, let's get into episode 110, The Murders of Chanel Ho and Marna Engelbrecht. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Chanel Ho was the only child of Ronnie and Sonia Ho. The couple divorced when Chanel was quite young and her father Ronnie remarried. Chanel lived with her father, stepmother Anna and stepbrother on Ronnie's farm in Delareville. Her mother Sonia lived in Costa where she worked at a holiday resort and she lived there too. As is so often the case with rural households, while there's often a primary school close enough to attend while still living at home, when Chanel started grade 8, she had to move to a school with a hostel and live there during the week. The Ho family chose Stella High, which is a 46-minute drive from Delareville. The school had a good reputation and it was close enough for Chanel to spend weekends and holidays at home. She would also visit her mother in Costa quite frequently and had a good relationship with both of her parents. Chanel Ho was the quintessential farm girl. She very clearly was happiest when outdoors, and with her deep tan, blue eyes just like her dad's, and long blonde hair, she was a strikingly beautiful girl. Chanel's dad, Ronnie, wanted her to be a model, 
He was sure that this would be a great opportunity for his beautiful daughter to see the world and probably earn some pretty good money at the same time. But although Chanel enjoyed dressing up like many other young girls, she didn't see herself modelling. Instead, she dreamed of a future on the other side of the camera. She wanted to be a professional photographer. Chanel is described by her family and friends as loving, sweet and good-natured. She definitely strikes me as having been quite a bubbly and outgoing girl as well, so she likely did well in the hostile environment in Stella, and it would be there that she reconnected with the girl who would become her best friend. Dark-haired Mana Engelbrecht seemed to be the perfect opposite of her friend Chanel in many ways, but they were also very similar. Mana, too, was a farm girl. She lived with her father Stefans, mother Rianette, and sister on a farm in the Freiburg district when she wasn't staying at the hostel in Stella. Mana seemed to be less outgoing than Charnel and a little more serious. She was highly intelligent and also strikes me through her actions and the things she said and did as being very mature and wise for her age. Mana had a deep love for animals and wanted to study to be a vet when she matriculated. Something that struck me about this case being covered was that the two girls' characters almost seemed to morph into one in the public eye. I think that because they were so close, spent so much time together, and would sadly also end up losing their lives together, they almost lost their distinct identities. And yes, these girls did spend a lot of their time together. They really were very closely bonded. When they weren't living together in the hostel, they would often spend weekends at one another's homes. Each girl was so deeply ingrained into one another's family that when they slept over, if the one whose house it was wanted to go to bed early, the other felt comfortable enough to stay up with the rest of the family without them. It was like the Hoes and the Engelbrechts each had an extra teenage daughter. And it would make the tragedy that awaited them all the more difficult to bear. The other role player in this case, Zander Balsma, was actually related to Meiner Engelbrecht, although this didn't play a role in him meeting and eventually dating Chanel Ho. Meiner's father and Zander's mother are cousins, but the two younger people had never been close at all. Sander Belsma was born prematurely after his mother had experienced significant difficulties in her pregnancy. Mersha Belsma had also suffered several miscarriages before her pregnancy with Zander. So when, in the first few months of her pregnancy, she'd contracted German measles and doctors recommended she terminate, she'd refused. She simply could not bear the idea of purposefully removing a fetus from her body when she'd already lost so many beyond her control. Mersha and her husband Monty decided that they would take whatever damage may have been done to their baby in their stride. If he was born disabled, then they would cross that bridge when they came to it. When Zander was born, he was a sickly baby for quite some time, but he was not permanently impacted by the German measles virus and Mersha must have felt extremely validated in her decision not to terminate her pregnancy. 
this traumatic beginning and the couple eventually being able to take home their perfectly beautiful baby boy would create an extremely strong bond between Mercia and her son. And the waves of this trauma would continue on and be evident in the parents' lives almost 20 years later. Zander grew into a boisterous young man. He was very active and his parents would later admit that they'd struggled a lot with him when he was little. Monty was also working as a South African police service officer at this time, and it's perhaps a combination of both of these stressful factors that resulted in Monty and Mercia divorcing when Zander was in primary school. Zander took the divorce very hard and refused to accept that his parents would not be getting back together. Eventually, his parents took him to a psychologist, which would end up having no impact at all, as Zander refused to engage. When you listen to the companion podcast I did for Stella Murders, you'll hear more about how Zander has been described as a very direct person, and, quote, no nonsense. He's described as abrasive and arrogant, and these descriptions would certainly be supported by his behavior later. But others who knew him described him differently. His mother, for instance, described him as a soft-hearted young man who enjoyed the outdoors. Zander's teachers, though, would likely have described him as a bit of a troublemaker. We hardly ever see an offender like this having absolutely no history of antisocial or aggressive behavior. Sometimes you need to dig a little, but it's almost always there, and Zander is no different. Throughout his high school years at Stella, he was almost expelled on several occasions for bullying, an assault incident at a sports day, and possession of alcohol. This last incident got him kicked out of the hostel at Stella just before he started his matric year. He'd moved back to living permanently with his father and stepmother on his father's farm in Freiburg, commuting to school to finish his matric year. When his parents had divorced, Zander had spent a few years living with his mother and then moved to his father's farm when he was in primary school. When he started school at Stella High, He'd lodged in the hostel as home was 45 minutes away and a pretty hectic drive each day. But when he was finally made to leave the hostel for consistently breaking the rules, he had to live permanently with his dad again. Father and son seemed to have a decent enough relationship, but Sander and his mother still had an extremely strong bond and saw one another regularly. It would be another relationship, though, that would change Zander and so many others' lives forever, when in 2017, he met and started dating Chanel Ho. As is quite common with young love, Chanel and Zander's relationship accelerated very quickly, and they were quite taken with each other almost immediately. For some really interesting insight on the physiological impact of what happens in the young brain when it's in love, listen to the Companion podcast where I talk to psychologist Almarie Clarsons about this. Although Mona and Charnel's other friends and family were happy that Charnel had found someone she cared for so deeply, almost immediately they started to see red flags. In fact, before the pair even officially started dating, 
A few people mentioned that Sander didn't really have the greatest reputation in the area. He was known to be a bit of a troublemaker, and they weren't sure he was the greatest fit for Charnel, who really was a young lady who had her life together. But initially, at least, Charnel really wanted to give the tall, good-looking, and mostly charming young man a chance. It soon became clear, though, that Zander had very specific expectations from his partner. Marna commented that she slowly started to notice that Charnel was withdrawing from her. But although she understood that this would be normal if one of them got a serious boyfriend, she had a feeling that this wasn't the case with her friend. She felt that Zander was purposefully trying to isolate Charnel from her friends and family, and at first... He was successful. Charnel did start spending far more time with just Zander, and shared less and less with those who loved her. Zander exhibited typical controlling behaviour during this time. He insisted on knowing the passcode to Charnel's phone and regularly checked her messages and monitored her social media posts. Soon this escalated to physical intimidation and on more than one occasion, Zando was witnessed pushing Charnel and grabbing her arms when they argued. Although Charnel was enamoured with Zander, she was not entirely blind to what was happening to her, and their relationship would be on again and off again on several occasions throughout the approximately 11 months that they dated. But Zando would always convince Charnel that the difficulties they were experiencing were normal, and they just needed to work harder on their relationship. Mana, though, was having none of it. She told Chanel in no uncertain terms that the relationship was extremely toxic, and she needed to end it with Sander. In September 2017, Zander asked Chanel to be his date at his matric farewell and his behaviour around this event would be called into question throughout the town of Stella. After confirming that she would accompany Zander, Chanel had gone with her mother to buy a dress for the event. But when she told Zander that she'd found a dress and purchased it, he explained that this wasn't the way this was going to go. He had everything planned, and all she needed to do was show up. Between him and his mom, Mercia, Zander designed and had someone make a dress that he thought Chanel would look good in. He chose the jewellery she would wear with the dress, and even told his mom that Chanel would not be wearing any makeup that night because he didn't like the way women looked with makeup on. Mercia had eventually convinced him that makeup was part of the whole dressing up experience, but Zander had only agreed to it if Mercia would make sure Chanel wore minimal makeup. He even chose her hairstyle. On the day of the matric farewell, Chanel went through to Zander's mother's house and she helped the girl to get ready. Now, Chanel seemed to accept this at the time, but she very clearly realised it was strange and felt uncomfortable with the level of control Zander had exerted because she expressed this to quite a few people. In the companion podcast, I delved down into this incident with journalist Mariska Kutzer, who was able to get quite close to Zander's mother, Mersha. 
Mersha essentially says that Zander just wanted Charnel to have a stress-free day because she was his guest. And while this may be true, I just can't fathom the thought of a teenage boy inserting himself into his partner's dress choices, makeup, and even grooming decisions to this extent. Plus, when Zander did this, he knew very well that Charnel and her mother had already gone to the trouble and expense of buying a dress, one which would remain unworn in Charnel's closet. Looking at the timeline of Charnel and Zander's relationship, I have to wonder if Charnel didn't maybe find it difficult to break up with Zander permanently while he was still at the same school as her. And I can see how this would be difficult. He was in her space every day, charming and convincing. But by December 2017, Zander had matriculated. He'd gone to work for his father and no longer saw Charnel on a daily basis. To make up for this lack of daily physical contact, Zander attempted to increase his other forms of control with Charnel, phoning and texting her incessantly. Eventually, in early 2018, Charnel broke up with Zander for good. She'd expressed to her parents and friends that she really was not happy with him anymore, and his aggressive outbursts when he didn't get his way scared her. Those close to Charnel were happy that she'd finally made the decision, but immediately saw that Zander was not backing off. He continued to try and pressure Charnel into getting back together with him, and became such a nuisance that eventually Marna told him, in no uncertain terms, that if he didn't leave Charnel alone, he was going to be in trouble, as her friend's parents would take it further if they needed to. Zander responded to Marna's message with a shockingly hate and expletive-filled message of his own. In it, he called Marna some pretty disgusting names essentially telling her to back off and leave Charnel alone, or else. Marna immediately showed the message to her father, Stefans. Stefans later explained how he'd phoned Zander, deciding that there needed to be some voice of reason in the matter, and told the young man that he didn't appreciate him calling his daughter such names, and he should never do it again and it's here that a really clear separation in Zander's character comes out. He's described by many as being respectful of his elders and being polite. He'd managed to impress Charnel's parents with how helpful and respectful he always was to them. But as Stefan's Engelbrecht laid down the law with him in that conversation and told him in no uncertain terms that his behavior was unacceptable, Zander showed a different side. He started screaming at Stefans that he had no right to tell him what to do, and he ended the tirade with an ominous threat. If Stefans and Mana didn't stay out of his business, he would resolve the issue with his gun. At the time, Stefans Engelbrecht said he took it as nothing more than a pumped-up threat from a young man filled with emotion but he did warn Mana not to have any further interactions with Sander. Let sleeping dogs lie, he said. Chanel would just need to continue to say no to Zander until he got the message. He surely 
eventually would. By April 2018, Chanel was still struggling with Zander's refusal to accept that their relationship was over. She had, in the interim, met and started casually dating a new young man. Brandon was a young rugby star at school. Their relationship started as a friendship, and Brandon had liked Chanel even when she was dating Zander, but had respected their relationship while they were together. Along with Marna, Brandon had become a confidant for Chanel, and he'd witnessed several instances in which Zander had been physically and verbally abusive to Chanel while they were still dating. When Zander and Chanel had broken up, she'd started spending more time with Brandon, texting him and sharing more about how Zander was still refusing to leave her alone. Chanel, Brandon, and Marna hung around together as a trio quite often. All three got along, and Marna liked Brandon as a person. By May 2018, Zander was still reaching out to Chanel on her cell phone and sometimes arriving at Stella High School uninvited to see her. Time and again, Chanel told him she was not interested in reuniting. Occasionally, he would corner her, and she would be forced to have a conversation with him. For the most part, she tried to ensure that she was always around other people so that he didn't find her alone. At this point, it seems that although Zander had been physically aggressive towards Chanel in the past, and his behavior was increasing, approaching stalking, she didn't seem to feel an imminent threat from him. For the most part, she just wanted him to leave her alone. She'd clearly already moved past their relationship emotionally and was no longer in a place where Zander could convince her to give their relationship another try. It doesn't appear, though, that Chanel had considered he might be a danger to her safety. Chanel's mother explains that her daughter had always been a people pleaser. She'd always tried to keep the peace and would avoid conflict wherever she could. This would undoubtedly have made it easier for Zander to worm his way back in but Chanel seemed to be standing firm. Whenever she started to relent and wonder if she'd been imagining the toxicity of their relationship, Mana would remind her how bad it had actually been. And so, on Friday the 25th of May 2018, Chanel was definitely not thinking about Zander Balsma when she and Mana anticipated the weekend ahead. The Stella High rugby team were playing a match in Costa on Saturday the 26th of May, and Chanel saw this as a perfect opportunity to catch a ride with the team's bus and then visit her mom, who worked and lived at a resort there. Chanel didn't know that Brandon also planned on officially asking her to be his girlfriend on this trip. Mano would be coming along too, of course, and while the rest of the girls' hostel emptied out for the weekend on Friday night, the two girls settled in. The hostel house mother who lived on the premises was aware that Marna and Chanel were staying over, and they arranged with her to wake them at 6am on Saturday morning so that they could be ready to go by 6.30am when the bus left. In the boys' hostel, the rugby team stayed over that night too, including Brandon, Chanel's new love interest, who was on the rugby team. 
to piece together the pieces of what might have happened in the Stella High School dormitory on the evening of the 25th of May and the early hours of the 26th, we need to look at various witness statements and pieces of evidence that can be verified. These start to form a framework of sorts, and then later we can start to fill in the shadows. Charnel and Marna hung around the hostel that night. They chatted and drank coffee. Around 11pm, Charnel sent Brandon a text inviting him to come and drink coffee with her and Marna. This is supported by phone records. By that time, Charnel had already received several phone calls from Zander Balsma. She'd ignored them. When Brandon arrived, the three sat and chatted, drank coffee, and Charnel and Brandon held hands. Brandon would later testify that he'd noticed Charnel's phone continued ringing during this time, and she told him it was Zander. Chanel continues to ignore Zander's calls while she and Brandon dance and she squeezes pimples out on his back. Eventually, she is clearly distracted by the incessant calls and decides to answer. At around midnight, Chanel answers Zander's call and Brandon says she puts the call on speakerphone. The first thing Zander asks, Brandon says, is whether Chanel is alone. She says she is. He hesitates and tells her to walk into another room. She does so, but walks back into the room where Brandon and Marna sit. Initially, Zander is sweet and calm. He asks her if she'd like to go grab some food somewhere. She declines. He then asks her if he can come and drop off some of her clothes that he still has at his house. Chanel says it's fine, she'll get her dad to drop by the farm and pick them up. Zander says he doesn't know when he's going to be available again because he's very busy, so he's just going to drop them off for her right then. Chanel tells him not to. Zander then asks if the gate to the girls' dormitory is open. The gate is open. The girls had asked the house mother to leave it open for them so that they could go outside if they wanted to, but Chanel tells Zander it's locked. Brandon says that at this point, Zander starts to get angry. His tone changes, and he says that he will find a way to break it open if he needs to. Chanel, clearly used to this, tells him he can give the clothing to Marna through the downstairs window. Zander explodes. He swears at Chanel and calls her names. He ends the call with an ominous message. You're going to be sorry when you see what I do tonight. When the call ends, Brandon says Chanel is suddenly transformed from the happy, relaxed girl she was just a few minutes before into a tearful, frightened person. Brandon knows that Zander has threatened to take his own life in the past, He's used that to manipulate Charnel into getting back together with him on many occasions. He wonders if that was the point of the threat he just made, or was it that he would harm Charnel? Charnel does seem fearful, he says, but as much as Brandon offers to stay over with her and Marna, she declines. He suggests they come and sleep in the boys' dormitory 
but this makes her equally uncomfortable. She's afraid they'll get into trouble. She tells Brandon not to worry, that she'll just ignore Zander if he comes there. It's too late to ask the house mother to lock the front gate, so they'll just stay in their room. Everything will be fine, she reassures him as he says goodnight, and he reluctantly leaves the two girls alone. Brandon's phone records show that his last communication with Charnel was around 1am when he texted her to ask if she was okay, and to again suggest that he sleep there or they come to the boys' dorm. Charnel responds, telling him it's not a good idea and she's fine. At 3.42am, Charnel's father's phone pings with a message. He's asleep and will not see it until the next morning, when he'll be a little surprised about the content. It's a photograph of Charnel in her bra. The message attached reads in Afrikaans, I love you, Brandon. Half an hour later, at 4.17am, Charnel's mother's phone also receives a message. It reads in Afrikaans, Mommy, I just wanted to say that I love Mommy, and I'm sorry. The Afrikaans word for sorry is yamar, and in the message it's spelled incorrectly. Sonia Ho will only see the message two hours after it was sent when she wakes up. 6am on the 26th of May 2018 brings a number of activities into the timeline of this case. In the Stella Hostel, the house mother is waking up and getting her coat on to go and wake Chanel and Marna. The rugby boys are beginning to stir too in the hostel next door. In Costa, Sonia Ho wakes up to find the strange message from her daughter. She immediately feels that something is not right about the message. Chanel spelled words correctly, and the text style is not the same as her daughter's either. She wonders if something is the matter. She tries to phone Charnel, but there's no answer. After a few attempts, she phones her ex-husband, Ronnie, and asks whether he knows if the girls' plans have changed. Are they still coming to Costa? Pulled from the fog of sleep, Ronnie says that as far as he knows, nothing's changed. After he ends the call, he'll see the strange message from his daughter's phone. And soon, he will know that absolutely everything has changed. And it will never be the same for him or his family ever again. As the hostel house mother opened her apartment door and stepped out into the chilly dormitory halls, the first thing she noticed was a clump of long, dark hair on the floor near the downstairs bathroom. Still in a haze of sleep and set on her destination, the first-floor bedrooms where Chanel and Marna slept, she continued on, passing the clump of hair and the bathroom. She would need to ascend one flight of stairs to the first level where the girl's bedroom was, but she wouldn't ever step a foot on a single stair. As she rounded the banister, she was met with a sight that made her entire body lame with shock. 17-year-old Charnel Ho was suspended from the stair railing by a piece of rope. 
the young girl's body hung, lifeless above the alcove below. Her white-socked feet, just centimeters from a rack of bicycles stacked beneath the stairs. The woman stood open-mouthed for a few minutes, incapable of taking in what she was seeing. Her thoughts did not immediately turn to Marna and where she could be. Instead, she fled the building and ran next door to the boys' hostel. Their front gate was also open, and she ran straight to the man in charge of that hostel and hammered on his door. The rugby boys were mulling about at that time, and the woman tried to be as careful as possible about what she said so as not to scare the boys, but also insisted the man come with her immediately. After ascertaining that Chanel Ho was beyond help, the male employee calls the police and reports that there's been an apparent suicide at the hostel. They still have not found Marna, but run outside to wait for the police. Sergeant Human arrives quickly. The police station is just 1.2 kilometers as the crow flies from Stella High School. The school employees inform Human that there is a young girl inside, Chanel Ho, who appears to have taken her own life. They then also tell him that another girl, Marne Engelbrecht, is missing. Human spends the next few minutes searching the building. In the downstairs bathroom, to his horror, he finds 16-year-old Marne Engelbrecht, hunched over, also deceased. The girl was on her knees, with her body bent forward onto the bathroom floor. Around her neck was the handle of a material handbag, which had been wound around a tap above her head. Although this was a pretty rare occurrence for the small town of Stella, Human was able to assemble a team of qualified investigators pretty soon. Forensics officers were also called, but not before the families of both girls received the horrifying news. If we were to draw a heat map of telephone calls made in Stella that morning, between 6am and 8am, and of course for the rest of the day, it would look like an explosion. Ronnie Ho received a phone call soon after police arrived at the scene. He called his brother Louis, who was closer to Stella, and asked him to go to the hostel. He would meet him there. He then phoned his ex-wife Sonia to break the devastating news. Their beautiful daughter was dead. When I first heard about what happened when Ronnie Ho arrived at the scene, I was a little concerned. But after speaking with a few people I interviewed for the Stella Companion podcast, I have a better understanding of what happened that day. When Ronnie arrived on the scene, his brother Louis had been there for a little while already. He had found Charnel still hanging from the stair banister. He had wanted police to cut her down, but they insisted that forensics needed to check the scene before they did so. Although at this early stage the initial evidence certainly seemed to indicate a suicide, this was still just an unnatural death investigation with undetermined cause, and the evidence needed to be protected, just in case. Louis had accepted this, 
But when Ronnie arrived and saw his daughter, he refused to leave her hanging there. By this time, paramedics had already arrived and declared both Marna and Charnel dead. And when Ronnie, fired up by grief and determined to free his daughter from the noose, pushed past police and started to instruct Louis to help him get her down, police decided not to intervene. Ronnie stood underneath Chanel's body while Louis went up and cut the rope. In a tragic scene, Ronnie then sunk down with Chanel in his arms onto the large cushions below. There in the alcove, where ordinarily the chatter of teenage girls echoed up through the stairwells, and life, love and school were discussed between giggles and the occasional tear, Ronnie held his daughter for a long time, caressing her hair. Eventually, police would convince him to lay Chanel down on the cushions and move away. While that was happening, the Engelbrechts had also received the news of their daughter's death, and they too arrived on the scene. Marna's mom and sister entered the building and viewed Marna's body in the bathroom. Their immediate thought was that suicide did not make sense with the way that her body was positioned. When the rugby team had boarded the bus that morning, Brandon had immediately noticed that Chanel and Marna were not there. He'd become concerned when the hostel father had come to him and asked him for Marna's cell phone number. He'd asked what was happening, but no one would give him any information. Brandon was reassured by his coach that their absence was noted and explained, and more information would be shared with them when they arrived in Costa. All phone calls and texts to Chanel's phone go unanswered. Eventually, when the bus trundles into Costa, the team alights and gathers on the field. The coach explains to the boys that Chanel and Marna have both been found dead. No mention is made of suicide or murder at this point, but the fact that both girls are deceased seems to make it clear to the team that it was not natural. Brandon later explains that he was horrified at hearing the news and immediately thought about Zander's phone call. He calls Ronnie Ho and explains what he witnessed the night before. The grieving father thanks the boy for letting him know and puts the phone down. The private investigator involved in this case, Chris Saunders, would end up playing a pretty pivotal role. It was long assumed by many that he'd been hired by either Marna or Chanel's parents, but I would discover during my research for the Companion podcast that this was not correct. In the hours after the girls' bodies were found, the school's management committee called Saunders. The school, of course, immediately realized they could be held to some extent, culpable in the girls' deaths. They had, after all, died while in the school's care. Initially, I'd wondered whether perhaps the parents had not trusted the local police to correctly investigate the case, but when I discovered who actually hired Saunders, his presence made a lot more sense. The school wanted their own parallel investigation to take place to ensure that they had their own evidence to, perhaps, if it came down to that, defend a civil case. 
This revelation would also change things in terms of some people's views that the perpetrator in this case had been framed, and the blame had been pinned on him because it was convenient. While the parents may have, and and you'll soon hear certainly did, immediately suspect Zander Balsma, the fact that Saunders was hired by the school and not the parents meant that he had no so-called pony in the race, for want of a better phrase. When it came to the outcome of an unnatural death investigation or an eventual perpetrator. To the school, it didn't make things worse or better if this was a suicide or murder, nor did it make a difference in severity whether the perpetrator was someone who lived on the school premises or someone who didn't. By this point, it was already clear that the front gates on both hostels had been left open overnight. It would become evident that this was not entirely uncommon, especially when the hostel was not full. So this is how, just hours after the crime, when the family and gathering concerned parties were still outside the hostel, P.I. Chris Saunders appeared on the scene. In the Companion podcast, Chris shares with me how he felt on arriving there and more about his investigation. Saunders was granted access to the scene by officers and was given a walkthrough. He viewed the bodies and then went back outside to talk to the parents. It was then that he first heard the name, Zander Balsma. There were several people close to Chanel and Marna who, when they heard the girls were dead, even when it was still being alleged that they had taken their own lives, immediately named Zander as a person who should be spoken with. Chanel's cousin goes as far to say that when she heard Chanel was dead, her first thought was she didn't commit suicide. She was murdered, and Zander did it. When Chris Saunders walked back out of the hostel, and was given the breakdown of Zander's relationship with Chanel and his threats against Marna, he was then told that Stefan Engelbrecht had just heard from Ronnie about Zander's phone call the previous night, and Engelbrecht had immediately headed out to the Balesma farm. The others present were very concerned about what might happen, as Stefan's was armed and understandably highly emotional. Saunders quickly drove out to the Balsma farm in the hopes that he could stop Stefans from doing anything he may regret. Chris Saunders is an experienced private investigator, and one of the tools he uses to ensure he misses nothing in his investigations is his voice recorder. He doesn't use the recordings as evidence, but he uses them to ensure he keeps a timeline in check and has good recall of exactly what was said by whom. That day, he switched his recorder on when he arrived at the Balsma farm and slipped it back into his pocket. When he arrived, he found Monty Balsma and Stefans Engelbrecht outside with Zander slumped down close to the ground against a wall. Stefans was angry, insisting that Zander had killed his daughter. He pointed a gun at the pair when he arrived and threatened to shoot them. Saunders could cut the tension with a knife and he starts to attempt to scale down the emotion. First, he ensures Monty that he is not there to accuse Zander of anything. He just wants to talk to him. Then, 
He tries to convince Stefans that he will ensure Zander gets to the police station so he can provide a statement about what happened and everything can get cleared up. Eventually, Stefans relents and leaves. Saunders notices that Zander looks sleepy and is slurring his words slightly. He asks Monty what's wrong with him. It's his first time meeting the young man, so he's not sure if this is normal for him or not. Monty tells him he thinks he's just in shock. In reality, though, Zander has taken what has been described as a handful of antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication shortly before Stefan's arrived. It is unclear exactly how many tablets Zander took and why he did so. He would claim that it was to help him deal with the shock of hearing about Charnel and Marna's deaths, and he'd planned to take a nap after taking them, but Stefan's had arrived. It's very clear from his behaviour, though, that he'd taken far more than the recommended dosage, and many would speculate that this may have been a suicide attempt. It's also unclear who these tablets were actually prescribed to, as Monty didn't seem to realise his son had actually taken anything. In fact, Zander himself, when asked why he looked so sleepy and was slurring slightly, said nothing about having taken tablets initially, and simply said it was from the stress of the day. Although Monty initially did not want to let his son go with Saunders, he eventually relented when Saunders promised to ensure the young man was safe, and also on the condition that Monty would follow behind in his vehicle. Before they leave the farm, Monty admits to Saunders that he cannot provide his son with an alibi. He says he left the farm at 6.30pm the night before and only arrived back that morning. Also, before they leave the farm, Monty asks Saunders if he thinks he should organise a lawyer. Saunders tells him it would probably be a good idea for Zander to have access to legal advice. On the drive to Stella, the voice recorder in Saunders' pocket would record every word said in the vehicle. Zander claims that he first discovered that Charnel and Marna were dead at 7am that morning when Charnel's cousin had phoned him. Then Saunders steers him back to the previous night. He asks where he was. Zander said that he was with his friend Pity un- until 15 minutes past 10 at night. It would emerge that this friend of Zander's had a tragic past himself. The young man had witnessed his father murder his mother in a domestic violence incident when he was a child. His father was still serving a sentence for murder, and Pity lived with extended family. This difficult childhood would be called into question briefly when it emerged that the two young men had been together that night. But Pity was home the entire night after Zander dropped him off, and his cell phone activity confirms that too. Initially, on each occasion that Zander is asked, he denies being anywhere near the Stella Hostel that night, or in the early hours of the 26th. Zander is quiet for a while, and then says that Stefans had told him there was a video of the crime scene. He seemed to have mentioned this to Zander as a way to prove to him that the investigation was being taken seriously. Saunders confirms that there was a video taken that day. Then, Zander asks if he can see it. 
Saunders says he doesn't think that will be allowed. Zander goes on to paint a timeline of his movements. He says after he dropped Petey off at 10.15pm, he'd gone to a garage and purchased a pie. He'd then driven to a field where he usually smoked cigarettes. He later explains that it was simply a habit for him and he enjoyed smoking there. Then he said he'd driven to the farm his mother lived at named Camillefontein in the district of Freibach. He then waited at the gate, which he said was normal for him. It was still early and he didn't want to wake his mother, so he sat at the gate and smoked. He said he saw a Volvo truck come out of the farm at 4am and then he entered. The farm is a depot for a transport business and he claims that his mother and stepfather saw him entering at that time. Later on in the recorded conversation, Saunders starts to ask Zander if he's sure that he and Pity, or just he, maybe didn't go to the hostel. Zander goes back to the point of him having dropped Pity off and then going to smoke in the field. Then he starts to say he isn't quite sure what happened after that. Saunders asks him if he doesn't remember or if he doesn't want to remember. At one point in the recording, Zander seems to nod off. Saunders tells Zander not to fall asleep, and the young man suddenly starts talking. In fits and starts, he tells Saunders that he went to the hostel to talk to Charnel to see if he could fix things between them. When Saunders asks him what time he was there, he puts it after 2am, but he's unsure. This would line up with the other evidence we have in terms of what time Brandon says Zander had called and the last contact Brandon had with Charnel. He says he and Charnel sat on the stairs and spoke for a while. She said she wasn't going to get back together with him because she was seeing someone else, and this made him angry. Saunders then asks some questions that are, well, questionable in my opinion. He asks if he had hung Charnel, and then asks if he'd strangled Marna in the bathroom. Zander initially denies that he did either of these things. Saunders then launches into a deep description of how Marna was killed, and with what she was strangled. Zander responds by saying that after he and Charnel spoke, he left. Saunders tells Zander that everything will go a lot easier on him if he just tells the truth. He tells him that he can get a good lawyer and defend his case, but he has to tell the truth. Zander asks what he would need to say in order to get shot. Saunders says no one's going to shoot him, he just needs to tell the truth. Zander reiterates that he wants to be shot. Eventually, after some more conversation from Saunders, Zander tells him that the part where the murders took place feels like a dream. Chanel had told him she'd like to get back together with him, but she couldn't because everyone else was against it. He says at some point, Chanel got up to go put on long pants as she was getting cold. When she did, Manna had come downstairs and gone to the toilet. 
He tells Saunders he'd then grabbed a handbag that was lying near the stairs and he'd gone into the toilet. Mana was washing her hands and he attacked her from behind, punching her head and grabbing at her hair simultaneously. He said he'd wrapped the handbag around her neck and strangled her until she was no longer breathing. He then wrapped the handbag around the tap to make it look as though she'd hung herself. After that, he'd gone back to the stairs where Charnel had returned after changing. He'd continued talking to her, trying to convince her that they should get back together, but Charnel had continued to refuse. Zander went on to explain that he'd punched Charnel in the chest to wind her, and then wrapped his forearm around her neck and throttled her until she passed out. He then tied the rope around her neck and around the stair railing and lowered her until she was dangling in the air. He claimed he then walked away. I'm going to jump ahead slightly here because I want this all to be fresh in your mind when I discuss Zander's later claims. Zander would later say that Chris Saunders had fed him information during this discussion and told him what to say in his eventual official confession. And I will admit that there are times where Saunders does perhaps provide a bit too much information. But there are two things we must remember. Firstly, the information we hear Saunders providing was not what is termed guilty information, as everyone on the scene that day would have seen that Charnel was hung from the stair railing with a rope, and Mana was strangled with a handbag. Zander being told that would not necessarily influence any confession. The second thing we need to remember is that Stefan's Engelbrecht was at the Balesma farm for at least half an hour before Saunders got there. In his emotional state, he could have and likely did say every horrible thing he had seen at the hostel. So the information about how Charnel was hanged and what Mona was strangled with could have come from him at that point as well. The thing to keep in mind is, that I think is important at least, is that there was information in Zander's statement to Saunders and his eventual confession to police that no one could have known at that point in the case, because that information was only revealed in the autopsy. What Chris Saunders, Stefans Engelbrecht, and anyone else at the scene that day could not have known is that Charnel Ho's death was far more horrific than Zander described. And I will warn you that the following details are very difficult to listen to. When Charnel Ho's body was assessed by a forensic pathologist, he determined that Charnel had indeed suffered two different types of strangulation wounds to her neck. One wound was a pressurized throttling with something much wider than a rope, a forearm, for instance. This wound would not have killed her and was inflicted straight across her neck from side to side. A big part of the disbelief that one person could have committed this crime was the fact that two girls were controlled seemingly so easily and no one could understand how Charnel would simply have allowed someone to place a rope around her neck and suspend her from the railing without a fight. 
but the autopsy results explained this. Chanel had first been incapacitated briefly by a blow to her chest, which would have winded her. Then, as she was trying to catch her breath, her attacker manually throttled her until she was unconscious. Disturbingly, though, the pathologist would say that after the rope had been placed around Charnel's neck and she'd been pulled over the railing and cast down into the suspension position, the young girl had regained consciousness. This was clear from the way the rope had bruised her throat in various places and rubbed against her skin. It was also clear from her broken fingernails and the claw marks on her neck. Chanel Ho had woken up as the rope tightened against her throat. Desperately gasping for air, she'd clawed at the rope while trying to find anything to gain footing on, a fruitless attempt as she dangled in the alcove. All of her nails on her right hand were broken. She was right-handed, and this makes sense as she would have predominantly used her dominant hand to attempt to free herself, and most of the nails on her left hand were broken too. There is absolutely no way that anyone could have looked at Charnel Ho's body that day and known that there would be distinct types of wounds to her throat and a blunt force blow to her chest if they had not been the one to kill her. There's one other thing that I picked up which may or may not be of significance, but that no one else could have known at the point at which Zander gave his confession because Chanel was fully clothed on the scene. Zander says that Chanel had been wearing shorts when he arrived and while they were sitting on the stairs she'd gone up to put on long pants. In the photographs of Chanel's body on the scene, she is indeed wearing long pants and this seems a very odd detail to add in if it didn't happen. I've tried a few different ways to find out if Chanel was found to be wearing shorts underneath her long pants when her body was found, or if a pair of shorts was found on the floor of her room, perhaps. I've been unable to clarify this, but I have to say, it would be very strange for the changing into long pants detail to be included on a whim if it didn't happen. The reason I wanted to skip ahead and clarify this information is because, although Zander Balsma would go on to give a full confession with the same details as heard in the Saunders recording to police, by the time he got to court, he was claiming that this information had been fed to him by Chris Saunders. And at least on the two counts I've discussed just now, that could not be true, because no one knew that information, not even the police at that point. After being delivered to the police station by Saunders, Zander Balsma provided a full confession there too, and he was arrested. His mother Mersha and father Monty were present at the police station. Zander was 19 years old by this time, so he did not need to be accompanied by a guardian. He was asked on several occasions if he would prefer to speak with a lawyer, and he declined to do so until after he'd confessed. Zander was arrested that night. 
the town of Stella was in complete shock. In a matter of 24 hours, three of their young people had had their lives completely changed forever. Two had their lives snatched away, and the third would now have to prove he was not their murderer. I found the town of Stella to be such a unique place, with such interesting dynamics, that I dedicated a good part of the first episode of the Companion podcast to it. Soon, Stella was overrun with media, and the usually quiet town was buzzing with tension and emotion. The students at the school were given trauma counselling, and I can only imagine how difficult it must have been for the girls who'd lived in the dormitory to continue going about their daily lives there, knowing that two of their friends had died in that very building. On Friday the 1st of June 2018, Marna and Chanel were laid to rest in a joint ceremony. Their families decided that this is what the girls would have wanted. At the funeral, it's revealed that Marna and Chanel's paths had always been entwined, although they only really became good friends at high school. The two girls' parents had known each other before the girls were even born. Marna's mother performed songs at Chanel's parents' wedding. The girls had attended the same nursery school and became friends there too. But primary school would separate them briefly. Now the pastors leading the funeral service said, the girls would never be apart again. After the funeral, the crowd gathers outside and releases a mass of blue, purple and pink balloons into the air. As they do, they hope that Mana and Chanel are as free as those balloons. And while the funeral brings one point of grieving to a close, it heralds the start of another much longer and painful journey. Zander Belsma has been charged with the murders of Mana and Chanel, and now the families must sit through a trial. When Zanta had confessed, the families of the girls had breathed a sigh of relief. They were sure that this meant he would plead guilty to the charges and the process would be much faster and less painful. But that was not to be. On the 6th of November 2018, Zander is asked to plead to two counts of murder in the Freiburg Magistrates Court. He pleads not guilty to both charges. His attorney requested a psychiatric assessment, and Zander is placed on the waiting list. The state now understands something else, too. Zander is going to retract his confession. The grounds upon which he decides to do so will only become clear later, but they will cause even more speculation when they are revealed. Firstly, as I've previously indicated, Zander claims he was fed information to include in his confession and that he essentially felt he had no choice but to confess to end the questioning. His attorney claimed that he was in a highly emotional state having just lost a very good friend and his cousin and it's revealed that he had been under the influence of anti-anxiety and antidepressant medication during his discussion with Saunders. The Saunders confession, though, was never intended to be used as evidence in court, and the words the Zander said were not used as evidence against him. Rather, 
Once Zunder had raised claims that Saunders had fed him information, a trial within a trial had to occur in which Zunder's confession to a magistrate was put to the test. And this was done by providing the court with a transcript of Zunder's recorded conversation with Saunders to prove that Saunders had not said anything that could have been construed as providing Zunder with information to use in his confession. Many people have questioned the fairness of the confession Saunders obtained from Zander. In the Companion podcast, I discuss the read technique of interviewing, which is very controversial, especially with young offenders. The fact that Zander was clearly somehow in an altered state, and yet Saunders continued to question him, has also been raised. But in my mind, at least Saunders did on several occasions attempt to find out what was wrong with Zander, and both Zander and his father insisted he was fine, just in shock. For those who put a lot of emphasis on, on Saunders' actions that day, the truth is that the evidence he collected played no role in this trial. The only role it played was to disprove a claim that Zander himself made. Had Zander retracted his confession for another reason, perhaps claiming his rights had been violated or he was coerced or assaulted, the same process would have been applied to the trial within a trial, and the same guilty knowledge would have supported his confession as being true. How did Zander Balsman know what time the girls died? And how did he know the exact nature of the injuries to Charnel when no one else did at that time. Zander Belsma was not finished with Chris Saunders, though, and his defense attorney would claim in court that Zander had felt intimidated by Saunders' presence in his confession with the police. Zander claimed that when Saunders had taken him to the police station, he'd gone into the interview room with him and sat with police as the interview and resulting confession was done. Through testimony by several police officers and members of the public present at the police station that day, the state would prove that Zander had lied about this. Chris Saunders had dropped Zander off, made sure he was safely in the custody of the police, as he'd promised his father he would do, and then he'd left the police station. Multiple witnesses testified to this. When Zander's defense attorney realized that his client had outright lied to him and embarrassed him by making him present false information in court, he resigned as the young man's attorney. This resignation would be painted in a different light by the Balsmers, and the resulting delay would be claimed to be unfair to Zander by his new legal team. But this is the truth behind that change of counsel. Zander Balsma was denied bail, and his bail applications and communications with his parents from prison would only go on to further damage Zander's case. After the initial pleading stage, the trial was moved to the High Court in Mabatu, and Zander had decided that this trial was not for him. In letters he wrote to his mother in particular from his jail cell, he instructs his mother to find at least two corrupt magistrates and judges and make sure they are paid off 
well enough to swing his bail application in his favor. He specifically says in the letter that as soon as he is out on bail, he will then flee the country. In signing off one letter, he writes in Afrikaans, I wish that for once you would just read my letter and do exactly as I say. Just be a mother for once in your life and help me. Now, if this 19-year-old's gall in trying to bribe magistrates and judges is not shocking enough to you, you may, like me, have a severely averse reaction to the way he's clearly manipulating his mother emotionally in this letter. This would be an ongoing theme between Zander and his mother. He seemed to realize that Mersha had some guilt, perhaps around his childhood struggles and maybe her divorce, and he played on that as hard as he could. In the Companion podcast, I talk about child-on-parent abuse and the possible dynamic we might be seeing here between Mersha and Zander. In other letters, we see echoes of his abuse towards Charnel, where he threatens to take his own life if his mother doesn't do what he says. Zander also details a very specific plan he has to escape to Botswana. On and on, letter after letter, he uses manipulative language and threats to attempt to force his mother to commit fraud to help him escape. He clearly shows no interest in the trouble she might end up in, and interestingly, these conversations are all directed to his mother, who he clearly knows he can control, and not his father, who is actually the one footing his legal bills. Sadly, Zander's arrogance did not take into account that any letters written and sent from prison by a defendant or convicted offender are considered part of the public record, and these were soon picked up and confiscated by prison officials. They were handed over to the state, who used them to ensure that Zander Balsma would definitely not get bail. The level of deception here is just astounding, to be honest. And although Zander continues to claim his innocence, I have to ask, if Zander was innocent, why on earth would he be lying about Saunders' actions? And why would he be so willing to commit crimes and have his mother do so too, to flee the country? Surely, if he was innocent, his case should have stood the test of justice. He did, after all, have excellent attorneys. Monty Bailsma would end up having to sell the farm that had been passed down through generations of his family to pay for his son's legal bills. Also, during the bail hearing phase, another piece of the defense's own case would be used against them. The psychiatric assessment they'd asked to be done had come in. The defense hoped to use it to show that Zander had not been serious about the threats of fleeing that he'd made in his letters, but what ended up coming out was far more useful to the prosecution than the defense. Psychiatrist Grant Strong's assessment, rather than showing that Zander was somehow just in a very stressed state when he wrote these manipulative letters attempting to coerce his mother into committing crimes, instead showed the personality traits Strong identified in Zander 
were exactly the same as those represented in the letter. Strong describes Zander as depressive and having feelings of inadequacy. He exhibited an inability to understand the true motives of others and leaned toward being paranoid about what he thought other people were up to. Strong felt that the letters and his assessment showed that Zander was very quick to act impulsively and he allowed his anger to overwhelm him. Strong says that Zander often felt that his own experience of the world was far deeper than other people's. He felt alone and misunderstood. Strong indicates that Zander shows significant markers of paranoid personality disorder. I discuss this quite significantly in the Companion podcast, and how traits of this disorder did seem to show up in Zander's behaviour. When Belsma's new defence attorney came across the statement from Charnel's new boyfriend, Brandon, they quickly hooked on to the young man in an attempt to create a reasonable suspicion. To this day, those convinced of Zander's innocence attempt to claim that Brandon should have been looked at closer as a possible suspect. One of the main points that Zander's team would use was that Brandon's proximity to the girls that night he was on the same premises, and the fact that it was his testimony about Zander's phone call that had seemingly had people looking at Zander to begin with. The DNA evidence in this case, or lack thereof, would also be a major bugbear for some. But that is an entirely separate issue I'll discuss in a moment. First, Let's address the probability that Brandon would have made a better suspect in this case than Zander. All of the information Brandon testified about from a timeline perspective can be verified by cell phone records. Yes, he could have made up what Zander had said on the phone, but he was spot on about the number of times he'd called and the timing of that last call. Police looked at Charnel's communications with Brandon and found no indication that there was any toxicity from him toward her. He was kind and loving in his messages toward her, did not push her to commit to anything she wasn't ready for, and respected her decisions. And this leads to motive. Although this isn't something that's required to be proven, why would Brandon want to kill Charnel and Marna? There was absolutely nothing for him to gain from killing the girls. Zander, on the other hand, had significant psychological motive. He had a tremendously extensive history of abusing Charnel, both physically and emotionally. He had threatened Marna and her family. Then there is the DNA, or the lack thereof. There was no usable DNA evidence in this case. In other words, Zander's DNA could not be identified on the murder weapons or the victims. Much has been made of the fact that Zander's DNA could not be identified, and also that several unknown samples of DNA were picked up on both the victims and the murder weapons. There are several things we need to consider here. The crime scene was not someone's house. It was a high-traffic area through which many different people moved every day. 
there would have been a huge amount of DNA everywhere in that hostel. That combined with the fact that besides the murder weapons, there was really no way of knowing where the killer may have touched. Already made the collection of DNA by forensic techs a mammoth job. Despite this, they did swab surfaces that could have been touched by the perpetrator. The railing area around where Chanel's body was found, the entry door to the hostel, the girls' phones, their bedrooms were also swabbed in various areas because it was unknown when and how the perpetrator had gained access and whether he'd surprised the girls in their rooms or not. Besides Chanel and Miner's own DNA, no identifiable DNA could be distinguished from the surface swabs taken from the crime scenes. Now, that obviously doesn't mean there was no DNA. It may mean that the number of profiles present made it impossible for the lab to distinguish one profile from another, and thereby tie it to a single person. The murder weapons would have been two places that had DNA from a suspect been found would have made pretty significant evidence in court. But the two items used to murder Charnel and Miner came from the dormitory. The handbag and the rope were not brought in from the outside, and therefore would have been subject to the same mass of DNA contact as the other surfaces and objects in the hostel. The handbag, to our knowledge, was not touched by anyone that entered the scene that morning, including Mina's family, but the rope that was used to kill Charnel was. It's never been explained how the paramedics were able to check that Charnel was indeed deceased when she was still suspended, and while it is possible that they could have pushed through the bars on the top level and simply reached out and checked her that way, it is also possible that they had at some point touched the rope. But one would expect the medics to be wearing gloves anyway. So, while no additional DNA from them should have been transferred, it is possible that their efforts to ascertain death had disturbed some other DNA evidence on the scene. The other people that we know for sure touched the rope and Charnel are her father Ronnie and her uncle Louis and again it is entirely possible that their DNA would have been transferred to Chanel's body or the murder weapon. And also, again, every added DNA profile makes it more and more difficult on a scene where there are already multiple DNA profiles to distinguish from one another. The DNA from under Chanel's broken fingernails was collected, and the main profile there was her own. A significant amount of her own skin was found under her nails from clawing at her throat in an attempt to loosen the rope. Other unknown DNA profiles were also picked up, which were never identified. Although in many cases, DNA from under a victim's fingernails would be valuable evidence, Here it's not, because we know from the autopsy that Charnel was incapacitated very quickly and did not have the opportunity to fight back. Charnel did not scratch her attacker. Now those who would believe that Zander's innocence would cry foul at the fact that seemingly none of the DNA evidence was tested against anyone other than Zander. 
Some say that people such as Brandon, Ronnie, and Louis should have had to submit DNA samples to rule out their DNA from the rest. And perhaps that would have set some minds at ease. But that's not the job of an investigation. Both Ronnie and Louis Ho's DNA on the rope could easily be explained. Brandon's DNA on the rope or the handbag would be less likely, but since he'd been in the dormitory, it could also not be strange. In fact, even his DNA under Chanel's fingernails or on her body would have been entirely explicable, because they did have physical contact in the hours before she died. They hugged, held hands, danced, and she squeezed pimples out of his back. And yes, I will address this last point, because I know it's a bugbear for some. Brandon did not say in his initial statement that Charnel had been squeezing pimples on his back that night. He only mentioned it much later. When asked about this in court, he testified that he hadn't realized it was important and honestly felt a little uncomfortable talking about it to the police. And I can fully understand this. He's a teenage boy whose soon-to-be official girlfriend has just been brutally murdered hours after he was with her, and now he has to talk to the police about the physical contact they had that night. Again, Brandon was not a good suspect. And even though I don't usually give credence to wild allegations in the public domain, perhaps we can put this one to rest, for Brandon's sake, and most importantly, Chanel and Marna's sake. Some have claimed that it is possible that Chanel had told Brandon that night that she was going to get back together with Zander, and he had snapped and killed her and Marna out of jealousy. Is that an impossible scenario? No, but it's highly improbable. And actually, their text messages prove that this was not true. Brandon was the last person in the world that Chanel texted from her phone. And her messages to him were kind, loving, and no different from any of the others she'd sent over the previous few weeks. And then there's that text message that was sent to Ronnie Ho from Chanel's phone. The one of her in her bra that said, I love you, Brandon. Zander Balsma was well known for having a significant issue with the fact that Chanel occasionally took provocative photographs of herself. When they were together, he would search her phone for them. In his conversation with Chris Saunders, he mentions this specifically. Why would Brandon, if he had killed Chanel and Marna, have sent a photograph like that to her father with his name on it? He would have to be the dumbest criminal on earth. So why would Zander do that? Well, firstly, to demean Chanel after death in the same way he demeaned her while she was alive. To attempt to destroy her memory with her father. To prove to the world, at least in his deluded mind, that Chanel Ho was not the angel everyone thought she was. And probably... Again, with the boundaries of his false perceptions, perhaps he felt his murderous actions were validated by
by the mere fact that she had photographs like that on her phone. It must also be noted that although Zander would go on to continue to claim that Brandon should have been viewed as a suspect well into his appeals, he only started to name Brandon after his defense attorney was informed that Brandon had been there that night when Zander called, and that Brandon had been sleeping in the boys' dormitory on the premises. Not once before that moment did Zander even suggest Brandon could be responsible. Remember, when Zander asked Charnel if she was alone when he called, she said she was. She said nothing about Brandon being there. We don't know how Zander knew that Charnel was sleeping over at the hostel that night. He may have heard it through Stella's very active grapevine. He may have called her home to speak with her, and perhaps someone there said she wasn't home, and he put two and two together. But there's a very good chance considering he was no longer a pupil at the school, that he hadn't realised the rugby boys were all at the dorm that night. I've seen some wild and untrue allegations made about Brandon on social media groups. People claiming things about the evidence found that day that are simply blatantly false. And honestly, it disturbs me. Because no one deserves that. And ultimately it does not serve the victims for this unfounded theory to be perpetuated. Talking about those messages sent from Chanel's phone, the second one sent to her mother at 4.17am was clearly worded to sound like a suicide note. By comparing the style of other messages Chanel had sent to that one, analysts were able to determine that there was a high likelihood that Chanel did not type that message. And although in the first few hours some wondered if, if Chanel had taken her own life, that would be proven to be impossible by the physical evidence and injuries on her body. And the only person who continued to perpetuate that theory was Zander Belsma. In his conversation with Chris Saunders, he claims that he believed Chanel wanted to die. Mind-blowingly, he claims that because she'd taken semi-nude photographs of herself and sent them to people, there's that photograph issue again, she felt so ashamed that she wanted to end her life. If this was not such a serious issue, I would laugh out loud at the ridiculousness of this. At no point had Chanel been shamed by anyone for photographs she'd taken or sent, except Zander. This issue did not exist in Chanel's life. It only existed in Zander's. He was the one who felt this was such a deep and shameful transgression, not Chanel. The other thing about those two messages is, is that some ask why Zander would have waited half an hour between sending the messages. Surely once he'd killed Marna and Chanel, he would have just wanted to get out of there. Well, most people would, yes. But I don't think Zander's level of obsession and arrogance puts him on the level of most people. His entire focus that night was Charnel. Sadly, Marna was killed because she was there and because he hated her for helping Charnel to stay strong against his manipulation. 
But everything that night was about Charnel. At first, trying to convince her to get back together with him, then killing her and setting about destroying her image and memory, or at least attempting to. He had always been obsessed with her communications and what was on her phone, and I have absolutely no doubt that despite the fact he'd just killed two people, he would have taken every moment possible to go through that phone and discover every last so-called secret it held. So that's what I think he was doing for that half an hour between the message to Ronnie and the message to Sonia Ho. He was reading Charnel's messages, looking at her pictures, checking her social media, and pretty much getting the unfettered access he'd always wanted to her life. He knew he couldn't take the phone with him, so he had to see everything there was to see while he was there. Why, though, would he deny doing this in his confession? Because he did. He admitted killing Charnel and Minor, but denied the cell phone activity. Well, I think Xander Balsmer realized that he could still continue to claim he'd killed the girls in a haze of anger and passion, and he could even try to claim he believed Charnel was, was suicidal. But the very deliberate act of sending the messages to her parents one completely demeaning, and the other intended to frame Charnel's death as a suicide, would change the nature of the act. After Zander retracted his confession, he changed his claims about where he was that night a few times, perhaps to allow for any possible evidence that may be found that linked him to the scene. We also know that he was told that an eyewitness had seen his vehicle near the hostel that night, so the story he eventually decided to go with had to include him being there in some capacity. Eventually he would say that yes, he and Charnel had met that night, but she'd come out to his vehicle, and they sat there and chatted, and then they'd said goodnight and she'd gone back inside. It's interesting to note that from day one, Zander told his defense team that they would not find any of his fingerprints at the scene. And this brings into play another possibility for why no distinguishable DNA of his was found either. He very possibly could have worn gloves. At this point, with the evidence available, we have no reason to doubt what Brandon says Zander said on the phone call, and his words were, You're going to be sorry when you see what I do tonight. Brandon, and possibly even Charnel, took that at the time to mean that Zander might harm himself. But when we look at how this crime was staged as a suicide, and if it hadn't been for some key pieces of evidence, might have continued to be seen as one, I have to wonder how premeditated this could have been. I don't think for a minute that Zander had planned this for weeks, but I do think that on that night, he knew that if he couldn't get Chanel back on side, it would likely be his last chance to do so. And maybe he decided that if he couldn't have Charnel, no one would. How prepared he'd been and what precautions he'd taken to avoid being captured will never really be known. But I think that there are a lot of fair inferences we can draw from the information at hand. 
Sander Belsma would present an alibi of sorts, though. Remember, in his initial conversations with Saunders before he confessed, he claimed that he'd been at the gate to his mother's farm at 4am. He still mentioned that a Volvo make truck had pulled out at that moment. Well, this is what he continued to go with as his alibi. Of course, if he had been at the gate at 4am, he could not have also been at the hostel at the same time, going through Charnel's phone. So which was it? Zander's cell phone pings indicate that he was in the area of Stella at 3.30am on the 26th. There are not very many cell phone towers in Stella and Freiburg, so it's not really easy to pin down exactly where he was. But it's very possible that he was at the hostel when this ping happened. The next time his phone pings off any tower is at 5am in Freiburg. Now, the distance from Stella to the Camillefontaine farm just outside Freiburg, where his mother lived, is 64 kilometers, and about 45 minutes travel. So if that 3.30am ping could have happened as he was leaving Stella, he could have been at his mother's farm close to 4am. But Zander himself makes this possibility impossible. He claims that he arrived in Stella around midnight. Charnel came out to his bucky, and they sat and spoke there for almost three hours, and he left Stella before 3 a.m. If this is his claim, then it would be highly unlikely that his phone would still be pinging off a tower in Stella at 3.30 a.m., because then he would already be far closer to the Freiburg Tower. Now, the police did investigate this truck sightings under claims to have had at his mother's residence. The tracking device company that operates the tracking devices in the trucks was able to determine that a Volvo truck had been switched on at the Camille Fontaine farm at 4.02 a.m. on the 26th. That truck drove out onto the road to Freiburg at 4.30 a.m. The driver of that truck was identified and he was sent a summons to appear in court, but he didn't arrive and could not be contacted after that. The summons was sent by email to the trucking company. The prosecutor asked Zander whether his mother had access to the record showing which trucks left at which times from the farm. Zander said he didn't know. The implication was clear, though. The prosecutor felt it was possible that Mersha Balsma may have given Zander this information to use as an alibi. This driver could have been a crucial witness for the defence. If the driver was able to testify that he'd seen a bucky fitting Zander's vehicle description outside the gate to Camille Fontaine that morning, this would have strengthened his alibi. But amazingly, the defence simply accepted that the witness would not be appearing and didn't push any further on the matter. Surely, one would go to the ends of the earth to track down this witness and ensure he arrived at court, especially considering he worked for the company Mercer worked for. It really shouldn't have been that difficult, but it seemingly was. 
The states, in addition to suggesting that Mercia may have supplied the information about the truck that left the farm at 4 a.m., also contended that another possibility is that when Zander was entering Freiburg at 5 a.m. after committing the murders, he saw the Volvo truck coming from the direction of Camillesfontein and realized it had come from the farm. To explain the various inconsistencies in his testimony, Zander would blame his previous attorneys. He claimed that the information he was raising at that point had in fact been given to his initial counsel, but they had chosen not to use it. One witness called to the stand would reveal some rather interesting interactions she'd had with Zander Bailsma just two days before the murders. The young lady, whose first name was Anastasia, had known Zander for some time. They'd flirted, but lived too far apart for a relationship, so instead they occasionally chatted on WhatsApp. On the 24th of May at 6pm, Zander phoned Anastasia. She was a little annoyed because she was watching a soapy she enjoyed, but she picked up the phone. Zander was raging. He was angry about Charnel having moved on to another relationship. Anastasia and Charnel knew each other in passing. In fact, they shared a nickname, Lali. Both girls were known by the nickname. And of course, they had another shared connection in knowing Zander. Anastasia testified that Zander had told her that day that he didn't know how he was going to control his anger if he was in Stella again and saw Charnel. He told her he was going to drive Charnel to suicide, even if he had to help it along himself. He then went on to tell the girl that Charnel had been sending photographs of herself to Brandon and that he was going to show those photographs to Ronnie Ho himself. Although Anastasia and Charnel had previously discussed Charnel's relationship with Zander, and Charnel had said she wanted to end things with him but didn't know how, Anastasia decided not to let Charnel know about what Zander had just said. She didn't want to get in the middle of them, and she honestly thought that Zander was just blowing off steam. Surely, he couldn't be serious. Two days later, when she discovered that Charnel and Mana had been murdered, she'd felt terrible about not saying anything. She testified in court that on the same day, she told her parents about the calls Zander had made to her on the 24th. In cross-examination, Zander's attorney accused Anastasia of lying. He said that Zander had not phoned her, but she'd in fact phoned Zander to get his advice on a disciplinary process against her at her high school. The attorney further claimed that Anastasia and Zander were in fact in a relationship at one point and alluded to the fact that perhaps she just wanted to get back at Zander for breaking up with her. Anastasia denies this. She says that there was never any disciplinary process against her at school and her and Zander were never in a relationship. Now, I don't know when Anastasia first came to police with this information, but I do wonder why more wasn't done to validate this claim. Even though the prosecution could not know what cross-questions the defense would come up with in court, the very base proof 
could have been verifying whether this call actually came from Zander to Anastasia, or whether it was vice versa. But that didn't seem to have been done. The judge would accept Anastasia's testimony. And I do want to warn that I have seen a lot of speculation on social media around this young lady's testimony. And I have the same to say as the speculation around Chris Saunders' role in this crime. Zander Belsma would have been convicted without this. And if Anastasia did tell her parents about this call on the same day the news first broke about the murders, and she told them the exact same story she testified to in court, then she probably would not have had the finer details of the incident. Not at that early stage. In the first 24 hours after a crime, the details are all muddled. It's very likely that for at least 24 hours afterwards, many people still believed the suicide rumour. And I'm pretty sure the detail about Ronnie having received photographs from Chanel's phone was not leaked in the first 24 hours. I can't see Ronnie having told anyone except direct family and the police about this. So how would Anastasia have known that if Zander hadn't told her about his intentions? Unfortunately, there are a few things that would have needed to have been verified before we could really say that Zander had premeditated this murder as long as two days before, but it certainly is an interesting piece of testimony. On the 17th of February 2020, the judge was ready to deliver his verdict. After two years of representations and delays, the case was summarized eloquently and clearly indicated from the first line which way the verdict was going to go. The judge opened by saying that he rejected Zander Balsma's version in totality. He said the young man had continually contradicted himself and been shown on several occasions to be blatantly lying. The judge went on to say that it was clear from the evidence that Charnel and Brandon were in a relationship, and that Zander's version that Charnel had agreed to give him another chance at some point was untrue. He said that it was clear that Zander had planned to arrive in Stella in the early hours of the morning when everyone else was asleep. He also knew the layout of the hostel because he'd once lived in the boys' hostel when he was a pupil there. The judge said that Zander had first strangled Marna with the handbag handle and then throttled Charnel before hanging her to make it look like a suicide. In his judgment, he refers to Anastasia's evidence that Zander had said he was going to do this. The judge said that he believed the motive was jealousy and anger that Charnel would not reunite with him. Zander Balsmo was found guilty of the murders of Marna Engelbrecht and Charnel Ho. In the moments after the verdict was handed down, the victim's family sighed with relief, but Zander's mother and grandfather broke down. His father disappeared and it was later revealed that Monty Balsma had exited the courtroom and assaulted the investigating officer and threatened Chris Saunders. Zander remained expressionless throughout and referred the press to his parents. On the 7th of August 2020, the Engelbrecht family arrived at the court early, 
They carried with them a huge photograph of Marna. They place it against the back wall of the court, so that the beautiful young girl's dark eyes look out over all present. The judge will look directly at her as he passes down sentence on her murderer. The sentencing had already been delayed by the start of the COVID pandemic, and the court is a very different place from when they'd gathered there for the verdict to be handed down in February. Now facial expressions are literally masked, and the social distancing regulations create cavernous spaces between emotional members of the gallery who just want to hold on to each other in this final, painful moment of the legal process. Instead, each sits with their hands folded in their laps, afraid of touching surfaces around them, and perhaps more afraid of what the judge is about to say. As Judge Hendricks begins, he brings home the truth of the case before him. He says that gender-based violence is a scourge in every community in the country, and it is clear that Stella has not been excluded from its ravages. He says that the only thing that may help to stop the violent murder of women at the hands of their partners and others close to them is to pass down the harshest sentences available to these offenders so that others will know the issue is being taken extremely seriously. The judge does not take Zander's use or the fact that this is his first violent offence into account. He says he sees this far too often in courts, and it is sending the wrong message. Zander had time between Mina's murder and Charnel's murder to stop and think about what he was doing, but he continued on regardless. The judge sentences Zander Belsma to two life sentences, one for each life he took. The families respond to the media's questions about how they feel by saying they feel justice has been done, they also acknowledge it won't bring their daughters back. Monty Bailsma has just one word to describe his feelings, and it's a word that has been used so often in connection with his son, fury. In the months that follow, Zander attempts to appeal his case to the highest court in the land. He appeals both his conviction and his sentence, and fails in both regards. Among the reasons he claims he deserves a retrial at the very least is that Brandon's DNA was not tested to the unknown samples found at the scene, the driver of the Volvo truck did not testify, and his attorneys failed him in his representation. Over and again, appeal judges deny his claims. They ask why the defence did not have the DNA tested themselves. They had the right to do so. The same is asked about the truck driver. If he was such an important witness, why did the defence not go to the trouble of ensuring he was there? As for the lawyers, the judges make it clear that it was Zander's own conduct that resulted in his revolving door of attorneys. According to journalist Mariska Kutzer, the Bailsmiths continue to hold out hope that they will one day find a legal mechanism to prove their son's innocence. 
Zander has stopped talking. The bravado he once had seems to have shrunk as the reality of his future behind bars looms larger. In the companion podcast, I delve deeper into the impact that this has had on Mercia Balsma. I know that many will say she enabled Zander's arrogance and negative behaviours, but honestly, I think it's far more complex than that. As much as they may be blind to the reality, Mercia and Monty did not kill those girls. They did their best as parents, just like most other parents do. They did not make their son do what he did, and I don't think they should be crucified for his crimes. Yes, they continued to stand by him and still seem blind to his faults. But that is a separate matter entirely. Nothing they do now can change what happened. So they just need to muddle along on the path they think is best. And I don't think they need the judgments of the public to make that any worse for them. I have no doubt that there will always be people that think Zander Balsme is innocent. I wondered myself right at the start of this process. But now, after seeing all the evidence, after framing it in the context of an intimate partner murder and what we know those look like, after going through the mass of circumstantial evidence that all points to Zander Balesman, I have no doubt that he did this. Both Mana and Chanel would have matriculated by now. Chanel may have been working toward her dream of being a photographer, and Mana may be well on her way to studying to become a vet. If the girls had pursued these study paths, they would likely not have been able to do so at the same university. At some point, their paths would have diverged. And although I'm sure they would have remained really close, each of their lives would ultimately have played out in different ways. That is the natural progression of things, no matter how close you are with a childhood friend. That, though, is something that will never happen. Neither girl will ever get the chance to set out on their own paths and build the lives they deserved. In the Showmax documentary on this case, the loved ones and friends of Chanel and Marna speak beautifully about who they were as human beings. And that's really what I think we should start shifting to when we think about this case. Marna Engelbrecht and Chanel Ho, as they were, distinct, unique human beings. No longer Zander Balsma's victims. In videos found on Chanel's phone, the girls laugh together and use voice filters to speak in weird voices, cracking themselves up each time. They are scenes of perfect innocence. Not a care in the world, and utterly excited about life. Mina Engelbrecht was an incredible friend. The strength of character she showed in standing up to Chanel's abuser is really amazing for a girl of her age. And honestly, every one of us needs a friend like Mina. I can only imagine 
the incredible, brave, strong woman she would have grown into had she just had the chance. Chanel Ho should not have had to have spent the last year of her life stuck in a toxic cycle of abuse and manipulation. But she too showed how absolutely courageous she was and how deeply she understood her own value in this world. And as much as he would like it to, what her murderer did does not change that. He wanted their last moments to be as horrific as possible because he believed they deserved that. He wanted to crush Marna's strong, defiant spirit that stood up for what was right. And he wanted to destroy Chanel's memory by making people think less of her. And the irony is, everything he did to achieve that served only to do the exact opposite. As Marna's dark, haunting eyes looked out over the courtroom that day, she continued to stand for what was right. And every day that her murderer spends in a tiny cell, devoid of everything that feeds his ego, she continues to stand for that. Not a single person who knew Charnel, or even those who'd meet her after her death, think poorly of her. We see what he failed to. A bright and vivacious young woman who was just trying to live her life and experience love for the first time. Sadly, she and Mana both learned the most painful of lessons in their last moments. Sometimes when something looks like love and adoration, like everything you've ever wanted, it's actually the beginning of your worst nightmare. Chanel Ho, Mana Engelbrecht, Rest gently. Thank you for listening to episode 110, The Murders of Mina Engelbrecht and Charnel Ho. I highly recommend you go ahead and listen to the, the companion podcast I created for Showmax's original documentary, Stella Murders, and of course, watch the documentary as well. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Lived Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. 